Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking free speech, the January UCAS deadline, and a new report about universities and the media. It's all coming up. I mean, I think the biggest thing that we've been seeing, and and I thought this the minute I saw that headline, was we are literally in the middle of a pandemic. What is this government's priorities? It's like... The the woke wardens. (laughs) Honestly, yesterday we got that that figure yesterday that one billion has been spent on unused accommodation, and the government thinks it's a priority to hire a, a free speech champion when students aren't even able to go and come Welcome to The Monkey Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Monkey's Editor-in-Chief, recording from Monkey's Lockdown Studio, and here to help fry the policy pancake for me this week are three brilliant guests. In London, we have Hilary Jebiabibio, NUS Vice President for Higher Education. Hilary, your highlight of the week, please. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Um, my highlight is this week I've invested in a heated blanket and I surely, surely did not know that um, you could get into bed already warm. So I've been really enjoying that. Lovely. In South East London, we have Richard Brabner, Director of the UPP Foundation. Richard, your highlight of the week, please. Hi, everybody. Uh, my my uh, highlight of the week is actually a really nice thing that I found out uh, this week. Uh, my, my wife's grandfather, who was an industrialist in the 60s and 70s, um, actually helped set up the teaching company scheme, which was the forerunner to, to KTPs. So um, I didn't know that before. So uh, I was pretty impressed by that. And um, uh, so, yeah. And in Watford, we have Wonky's own Jim Dickinson. Jim, your highlight of the week, please. Yeah. So my highlight this week. So you, so you might have seen that uh, television's Anne Robinson was announced as the new presenter of stu- apparent student favourite Countdown. Uh, and, you know, for me, the fun thing was watching offence archaeologists dig up uh, all the reasons why she should be sacked from that job uh, by watching lots of old clips of The Weakest Link where she was genuinely and horrifyingly offensive. Nasty show. And I like to think we're much nicer to our guests uh, on the wonky show than uh, than than the weakest link, um, but let's let's start the start the week with the uh, the big story is Tuesday's announcement uh, by the Westminster government that uh, it plans to legislate for freedom of speech at universities. There's a lot to talk about here, Jim. Get us started. Well, I mean, you say Tuesday's announcement. It was all leaked. I mean, all the headlines were leaked to the Telegraph on Sunday, which then, of course, I mean, you know, props to uh, the Mail on Sunday's, you know, night desk editor who nicked the story, as the Mail often does, and rewrote it as Woke Warden, which uh, lots of people thought was mildly amusing on Sunday. So, yes, uh, a free speech champion is to be appointed by... Uh, government and plonked onto the Office for Students Board with similar analogous powers to that of the Director of Fair Access. Uh, although the slight difference is that they would have ombudsperson powers over matters that relate to free speech and academic freedom, which, uh, you know, we'll obviously uh, come to. Uh, and then a few other bits. So the general duty that's already there will be toughened up and, uh, you know, some suggestions about how universities might comply with that toughening up are in this document. 
um, and the you know various other bits and bobs, including the idea that students' unions would be bought directly under the auspices of the Education Act 1986, which covers freedom of speech in universities. Um, what's what's more broadly going on? I mean, we could fill not only this podcast but plenty of others. Um, I, you know, a few things strike me just to kick us off. It, it, I do think it is extraordinary and important that we've got 15,000 words here. And when you compare that to the length of the, you know, uh, response to the TEF review or the interim orga review, that just doesn't feel right somehow in the middle of a pandemic. And a lot of the commentary actually from both sides was about, is this really the right priority at the right time, which I thought was interesting. The actual proposals are extraordinary because they don't look like they would work. So if you give... Uh, a, a free speech champion on the OFS board, ombudsperson powers, it's not clear where a complaint that a student might have that's about harassment or fitness to practice is, is easy to slice out from matters of, you know, academic freedom and freedom of speech. And it's not clear that that's workable. It's not clear that the proposals on students' unions are workable either in the way that they're described. And there's no consultation in this. And it, it, the whole thing reads like, a bunch of work was done pre-pandemic. It's been kind of rushed out during the pandemic to please a bunch of people. And it's, I find it hard to believe that the actual proposals as written down would survive. And there's a couple of kind of classic, I bet a civil servant has written that in caveats in there, buried in there about, you know, we recognise that we will have to look at this and, you know, think about whether or not this all works in practice with the Office for Students and so on and so on. So, I mean, it's an interesting mixed bag. I think, you know, the most important thing, for certainly for me and Dean, when we looked at it the other day was that the the, the, re, the most important bit of the proposals which is this toughening up of a duty actually has to admit that there's already a duty on the office for students to uh look after you know to look at free speech and academic freedom and really what the proposal does is it says you should take two sub bits of an existing duty lift them out make them their own duty and then change the language around that duty slightly which reminds me for listeners of a certain vintage and of a certain persuasion reminds me very much of uh, compositing motions at nus national conference where you know someone would turn up and say i want the two lines of my mo of, of that motion to become their own motion and i want to propose it you know it's all very kind of odd and you know you're left with the impression that this is a piece of politics rather than a serious piece of you know regulation uh that might impact you know the real culture of universities well i'm going to come back to that i just want to zoom out for a second and richard i, I want you to give your best effort at explaining the government's motivation here and and the problem they're trying to solve and then we're going to go back into the detail and I want to get Hillary's thoughts about some of the impact of some of these measures. Um, I'm not sure I can really answer what the government's motivation is and, and, and their efforts to, to tackle this issue because I think my view is slightly different to the government's. I, I find myself, I suppose, in between uh, the government's position on this and some parts of the sector where they don't think that there's, that there's an issue around free speech. And I suppose one of the problems I think is, is that free speech is used as a bit of a catch-all to expose and talk about a variety of issues around the culture of an institution. Um, you know, we know from your work and Wonky's really important work and from OFS data that issues around counselling events and speakers and so on is not really much of an issue. A very tiny proportion of events and speakers have been, have, have been no platformed and cancelled and so on. Uh, a very tiny number of institutions. Um, and so I, I find, you know, I'm 
quite sympathetic to students and to student unions and to the NUH when they um, uh, uh, really sort of find it frustrating that they seem to be blamed for for, for this issue, particularly when students' unions, uh, in the main, are, are supporting free speech and are exposing students to debate and new ideas and are doing a really good job um, around that. Where I do think there's uh, an issue, a uh, concerns. Um, that are connected to this, which is around diversity of thought and I suppose a monoculture, particularly within the social sciences, humanities and the arts and, and, and the academy it, itself. Um, and I think there's plenty of evidence that there is a, you know, dominated by particular political viewpoints within those areas. And how this really intersects, I suppose, with polarisation in society more broadly, um, the growing problem, I think, of tolerance on, on social media. Um, and, and if you do a daily trawl of academic or university Twitter, you'll see quite a lot of hostility and intolerance, I, I suggest, there. And in fact, wonky um, have been sometimes the victims of that. And um, the impact that this potentially has on students and staff who might have minor minority and unfashionable views that go against the grain. Now, I think there needs to be much more research around this, um, but the best piece, I think, was done by King's in 2019, uh, which showed that there Mis was... Misquoted a, in, the, uh, yeah, in the government's uh, paper this week, yeah. Yeah, a much stronger piece of work than the policy exchange piece, I think, that did show that, um, for example, there was a, a much bigger chilling effect of self-censure amongst sort of conservative and Brexit uh, uh, supporting students in comparison to left-leaning students. Um, you can obviously, there's, you know, that doesn't expose causation, um, and we can discuss that. And, I, and I'm sure if you actually look at, do, do a piece of work and research Research other other students within the community. They're, 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 it might expose other areas of, of self censorship um, and, and a chilling effect that, that that is probably not as healthy um, as we'd like it to be. So I think that's really sort of the, the debate, and, and it's as much around culture of within universities and the behaviour that we have towards each other. Hilary, how, how has this gone down with students and student unions? I mean, I think the biggest thing that we've been seeing, and, and I thought this the minute I saw that headline, was we are literally in the middle of a pandemic. What is this government's priorities? It's like the, the woke wardens. <laughs> honestly, like, yesterday we got that we got that figure yesterday that one billion has been spent on unused accommodation, and the government thinks it's the priority to hire a a free speech champion when students aren't even able to go on campus because they'll probably get fined um, for leaving home, and then they can't even afford their rent or or. or or getting to their lectures properly because they don't have the right equipment and can't afford it. And so I think that was the first sort of big reaction, which was like, how much more out of touch is Gavin Williamson with what is actually going on on the ground? It just seems so bizarre. Um, I think the other thing is, is that this is something that we've been, we've been anticipating for a really long time. And actually, um, we've seen that the work that we've been doing with one key that NUS and one key and student unions have been doing, but even more so the work that is just ongoing. Um, it's it's just it's very very bizarre to us also that despite all of that work the government just seemed to have blinders on to the fact that anything that isn't fit in their narrative just isn't happening and so there is no acknowledgement of the fact that existing um, measures are in place and and I think student unions are feeling really really annoyed at this point that this government keep flip-flopping um, from villainizing them um, to you know telling people to, to engage with their student unions because they're great hubs for student engagement and representation I just have no idea what this government wants to do or what their priorities are anymore with this with this um this these proposals coming in that just show a lack of awareness of what is actually going on put, uh, it's probably a big ask to put this aside putting aside that uh you know question of all the other priorities that the government should be spending um its time and bandwidth on when it comes to students and, and universities which I, I i completely buy by the way um but just put, try to put that aside for a second hillary what is there anything in here that you recognise as 
as a valid criticism or something that needs to be tackled in, you know, trying to take it in good faith. Um, what, you know, what is the issue on campus about free speech that the government is trying to solve? Look, I think it's really, really important that all students are able to feel that they can use their right to freedom of speech and freedom of expression on campus and in society. And that's something that you'll never find me disagreeing with. Everybody has a right um, to express what they what they think or feel. Um, I think what's what's important is that the government framing this as a, a freedom of speech crisis where there's such little evidence, let alone no evidence, showing that is a that there is a widespread um, perception um, is, is misguided instead of thinking about this being a way of championing existing measures that show that freedom of speech is protected and promoted on campus. And I think for those that don't have confidence that they know what those measures are and what those robust procedures are, I think the priority needs to be on championing those measures and showing exactly what um, students have that are protecting their right to freedom of speech. Um, I also wanted to add that actually what has to happen in tandem with this is that um, as much as we continue to promote and protect free speech, we must also make sure that students are confident that there are robust measures to protect students from vulnerable communities from from being exposed to hate speech as well and I think that has to go hand in hand with any freedom of speech work that that happens but um if if I try to see it in in good faith I think that, that the issue is perception as opposed to there being an actual freedom of speech crisis on campus and, and I would hazard that I guess in the same way that you know wonky isn't and, and many of probably most of wonky's listeners aren't, aren't the uh the target audience for this piece of work you know student unions aren't um and the NUS aren't and and, and the government probably just doesn't care what any of us actually think i mean but i i sort of agree that the government doesn't care what what any of us think um i do think they should care about the impact of their of of what they're going to do on on the culture of of universities themselves and i suppose where i find it quite frustrating being somebody who's not completely unsympathetic to the government's position on 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 some of this is i actually think what they've come up up with is not going to make any difference whatsoever to to the actual issue that 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 they're trying to expose and in often might actually make things worse so for example they're they're they're, um by in terms of the extending legal powers the appointment of the free speech champion and, and so on um uh, and with and you and, and putting issues within the OFS's remit and so on. What they're essentially doing is a very technocratic solution to some of these issues. And I actually think what they're doing is they're, they're exposing universities and students unions to more uh, legal, financial, and reputational risk. And I don't just do not see how that is going to enhance free speech on campus. Actually, it might make things worse because you all know you've all worked in universities. And, and, and what I find so weird is that those that are leading this debate within within the university sec- sector have, have worked in universities for decades, and they know that you how universities and students unions and others will respond to this is they're going to try and mitigate the risk. And they're not going to mitigate that risk by uh, because they want to limit free speech, but because they want to limit risk on those organisations. So that means that there'll that they'll be bureaucratic tyres around this, which might dampen down uh, free speech. And the other issue is that what it does, you know, if you read that paper, which I did a couple of days ago, and there, you know, the one thing that I sort of agree with is, is around issues around a chilling effect. But there's no sort of uh, interrogation on how you can improve that and behave, but improve the debate within the sector and, and in, in enhancing civility and tolerance of different opinions. Uh, nothing whatsoever. And actually, you know, what I fear is that what this is actually going to do is that uh, it's going to entrench positions because if you if you position this as sort of in opposition to the sector rather than working with parts of the sector and building a coalition 
position of supporters around this, that, that people are going to take it in bad faith. And bad faith positions mean you're, you're entrenched positions. So I actually think that those of you that don't think that there's an issue in free speech on campus should be absolutely delighted with what the government has come up with because it's going to actually not change anything and perhaps make things worse. And and could I could I add on the measures? I sort of I so I, I agree with Richard and I think if anything we're taking this as an opportunity to prove that we've got already robust measures. But what I find uh, quite ironic actually is that putting these measures under the remit of the OFS puts them in a tricky position too as an independent regulator given that the, the new chair that the government have appoint, has appointed still hasn't resigned the whip um, and and even more so it's, it, it just doesn't make sense for, for how the OFS sits now in the sector in relation to being an independent regulator as opposed to you know, uh, an an agent of how the government is going to to crack down on student unions and and all of the work officers and and work people they seem to harbour. Mm. I mean, yeah, that brings us nicely onto some of the some of the kind of problems in the in the detail. And and we've got plenty of analysis about this on the site, Jim. I don't want to get get us too bogged down, but there are some really glaring contradictions here, aren't there, about the regulatory landscape? Yeah, I mean, look, one of the problems is this is the age of the crackdown, right? OFS as something that isn't hefty, that is a regulator, feels it has to talk in language of cracking down on the things it doesn't like. Uh, and governments, of course, love to crack down on things. And Part of the problem is that the tone of all of this is that government doesn't trust OFS, government doesn't trust universities, OFS doesn't trust universities. There's a real lack of trust here in an environment where, you know, I think Richard's right, lots of these problems require complex and subtle interventions into essentially culture rather than kind of overt practice and and you know therefore the behaviors that you would want need to be clever and subtle but of course they're not they're they're framed in this lack of trust crackdown um context and language there's a mixture of stuff that ofs can already do but that OFS hasn't been doing. And, you know, if you really zoom out, one of the key messages in the 15,000 words is, you know, this is a kind of really strange, passive-aggressive way of getting OFS to do something that, for whatever reason, it hasn't done over the past couple of three years, right? Um, And, you know, it's like you're sat here thinking, surely there are easier ways for you lot to sort this out behind the scenes than to be launching 15,000-word policy papers. But, I mean, look, the other problem, I think, here is the way in which regulation is trying to be used to solve a kind of social problem. And let me give you an example, right? I have tried really hard to lean into some of this stuff from a good faith perspective, but there's a a little story that's buried in the 15,000 words, right? So you might remember Equality and Human Rights Commission, a couple of three years ago, launched a review into racism on university campuses, racial harassment, and drew, drew some conclusions around, for example, the existence of microaggressions, the need for bystander training and so on. All quite sensible stuff. You'll also remember that at one point, Sheffield Uni, working with its students' union, launched a programme of kind of student champions who could go and do training on microaggressions with people in halls and clubs and socks. Someone in the tab at Sheffield wrote that up as a student Stasi spying on students then spiked got hold of it then you know fleet street got hold of it for for a week everyone said you know sheffield has hired a bunch of student stasi to spy on other students and that issue actually appears in the 15000 words as if that was a real issue so you know buried in the 15000 words is we will expect higher education providers not to encourage students to inform upon other students for lawful free speech nor should they pay or otherwise reward students for doing so now i just don't believe 
that there are people inside DFE that honestly think that Sheffield was wandering round paying students to inform on other students. And so you try really hard with this stuff. Certainly I've tried really hard to kind of do that kind of good faith engagement and to believe that there's something properly well-intentioned here about, you know, improving the ability of students to have debate on campus or be exposed to controversial ideas. But you read stuff like that and you think you've ruined it. Yeah, and uh, similarly the, the, the stuff about scoring universities low or student unions low <laughs> yeah, based yeah. on, you know, having harassment policies and things like that, which, you know, for, yeah, for and, any, and any look, common sense. I, I think the wider <laughs> question <laughs> here like goes back to the, the distaste at the Tony Blair 50% target and so on and so on. On, which is, I think the thing that the Conservative Party hasn't really worked out is if you have a high skill economy, which is largely based around knowledge, a lot of that is going to involve going into higher education. But there's a fear that if you go from one in 20 or one in 30 people going into HE, being a bit left wing for a while and then growing out of it, and moving to one in two people going into HE, being treated fairly badly in comparison to previous generations because they're having to pay more for it, and then develop a habit of being left wing. There's a fear that they're being indoctrinated. And so you have to do something to actually to stop people being indoctrinated. And it's not dissimilar to this stuff that, you know, the panic about the National Trust, the BBC and so on. There's a, th- this long march through the institutions, mar- the Marxist paranoia thing, and this sense that we must do something to the institutions to stop people being indoctrinated. And I'm not sure that's true but but it does look like that that's what you know people in government believe and i think that's where a lot of this comes from and and i think short on policy levers to uh you know do the big rebalancing of uh of tertiary education that they, they keep talking about but not not actually doing because of the because of difficulty um perhaps ever so ever so subtly trying to uh, psych people out of going to universities just making it sound like an increasingly unattractive place uh for parents and kind of creating moral panics in a way that maybe will make parents think twice about sending their children there, because as we know, the, you know the cost of the system, the cost of the HE funding system, has got far higher than the Treasury would like. I, I do not- think the stars have aligned on this one. I think over the past couple of years, you've got classic libertarians that you know the kind of rcp spiked types you know who believe in you know libertarianism you've got social conservatives who you know believe what they've always believed and are kind of you know tacking to a kind of slightly older you know electorate and you've got then a very specific debate issues around uh transgender identity uh sex the, the role of that in policy and so on and so on when you combine all of those i think you get these sorts of interventions and you know for example one of the most amusing things I think I've seen this week is lots of the classic libertarians looking at what's proposed, going, oh, my God, no. Just because we've been sabre-rattling about this for three years, we didn't mean actually regulate, because the most important thing we believe in is, is no regulation. Yeah, no one more regulation. Yeah. <laughs> so you, who's been stirring this up, yeah. folks? Yeah. So, you know, I wonder whether those stars... You know, there's a kind of temporary alignment there that might kind of move, particularly as we come out the back of the pandemic and, you know, poli- you know tectonic plates of politics start to shift again. Um, I, 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 I completely understand the points that Jim has made. I think I probably have a slightly different perspective on that. In, in I, I'm not sure. It's I think it's sincere. I don't think that it's entirely bad faith. I think that they, they do think that there is an issue, whether you agree with it or not. I also think that what's something that we should explore um, or think about as a sector is that um, the impact of America on this discourse 
Um, and Helen Lewis, the writer from formerly of the New Statesman, now of the Atlantic, I think, right, has written really well about this for, in a different uh, context. But because, because the you know the internet speaks American, particularly in the English language, and, and we are very an American discourse tends to dominate. Um, I think that the UK is often uh, and, and our cultural centres, universities, media, the arts, heritage worlds, um, and so on, a, a sort of a part of an American culture war, which you know, uh, and, and parts of of some elements um, are. Of those institutions are sort of adopting some of the the tactics from the progressive left in America, and you'll see stuff that's going on in the New York Times at the moment and some of the other big institutions, which is is I think quite quite concerning. And then on on the right hand side, they exaggerate the issue because they are very worried that we're going to turn into this form of American culture war. And in the UK context, often people think of culture wars as what what the Republicans and the extreme parts of the well that's perhaps most of the Republican Party at the moment are doing on American discourse. But, um, you know, I, th- I think there is, a, there is a concern that what, when America sneezes, we catch a cold and, and, and that we're sort of um, uh, being part of a wider American culture war within this. Um, Hilary, I want to give you the final word on, um, on, the, on the free speech stuff. Uh, what, what would your message be to universities right now in terms of how to handle this document and these proposals? Um, and what would you like to see the sector kind of go back to government with? So I would say to universities, just keep on working with your student unions and your students and, and, and keep, keep making sure that the measures you have continue to be robust in making sure that free speech is promoted and protected. Um, I think in regards to what universities need to do um, in relation to the sector, I think it's important that right now we are vocal about what is already going on and actually standing up um, for the good work that is done already instead of sort of feeling like we have to lay down to whatever accusation is thrown at us um, from from the government and so I think right now it's a time to stand up and champion the already existing robust measures we have for protecting and promoting free speech whilst also making sure that that is done for all students in a really authentic and and widespread way and especially thinking about more vulnerable groups that have been affected but not but not um, had the platform to speak about that so widely. And you can find more details and our analysis uh, of all of this issue on the site and in the show notes. Hello, I'm Monkey's Editor-in-Chief Mark Leach and I just want to take a moment of your time to tell you about an event we have coming up. Everyone can agree that university admissions should be fair, but decades of reviews have failed to achieve a lasting settlement. And in what appears to be an unprecedented moment of consensus, in recent months, policymakers, universities and students all agree that implementing some form of post-qualification admissions is now the way forward. But in what form? Join us on the 2nd of March for The Future Shape of Emissions, a wonky at home event in partnership with UCAS to discuss just that. We'll explore the options on the table for policy from PQA to PQB and think through their implications for universities, admissions professionals, schools, and applicants. We'll hear fresh thinking from UCAS on possible models for emissions and stage the debate that will decide once and for all, we hope, whether the HE sector is really ready for post qualification emissions. That's the future shape of emissions. 2nd of March. Find out more and book your place now at wonky.com slash events. So, despite the government's seemingly best efforts, uh, applications to universities continue to rise. Uh, Hilary, talk us through the latest UCAS stats. So, um, the UCAS stats are out, you're right, um, and the application cycle has shown some really, really interesting things. Um, the first thing that was really interesting to see was that... Um, 18-year-olds um, have increased in their applications um, to universities, but even more so, um, mature students have seen a 24% increase in going to university, which um, could be an indicator that people are, are continuing to see higher education as a stable sector to be a part of, um, in, especially during this pandemic. And so um, that was really
really, really interesting to see, especially because um, a lot of that, that increase um, fell into allied medicine subjects. So um, nursing um, was was a big uh, a big highlight um, of this application cycle, and um, perhaps this is this is to do with how much we've seen nursing students um, stand out in this pandemic by by stepping in and supporting the NHS at such a hard time. Um, what was also particularly interesting, um, given we are now in post Brexit Britain, um, we are seeing that EU student applications have fallen, um, and that's really interesting because that could be an indicator of of those international ties that um, we used to hold so strongly starting to break in a really significant way. Um, so there's lots of interesting stuff in those stats and um, it'd be interesting to see um, how, how that's going to manifest when students start actually going into universities later this year. I mean, uh, applications from the EU have fallen 40%. I, I would call that a complete collapse um, mm. of the EU uh, EU market, um, which is, which is, I guess, not unexpected, but uh, really quite, really quite tragic. Um, we've also seen, I, I guess, there's the sort of the Chris Whitty effect keeps being talked about, doesn't it? Doesn't it, Jim? Yes, one of the papers said, are we seeing a Chris Whitty effect? Uh, well, we might be. Look, one of the things it's important to do is to not you know, take what we imagine, which is, you know, the default Harry Potter <laughs> student making lots of choices about higher education, leaving home and then, you know, returning again at the end of term, which is something I never stop banging on about, and assuming that what suddenly happened here is that Harry Potter has decided to become a nurse. You know, if you look at the numbers, we've also, you know, one of the big increases here is in mature applicants. <laughs> so what we may well have with the nursing and subjects allied to healthcare thing is people in later life deciding that this is a good bet for for retraining, which tells us some interesting things about where the response to auger should go and that wider, higher technical stuff and the support that should be put in place for, you know, adults who are retraining uh, to be able to kind of, you know, launch a new career and so on. It might not tell us as much as we think about, you know, what 18-year-olds are suddenly deciding to do having read the newspapers. You know, the, the other thing that strikes me in here is there has been a significant increase, not just in, you know, subjects allied to healthcare and the sort of stuff that that would attract really good Leo data numbers, but also, for instance, a real increase in creative arts up 10.68% over last year. So, you know, all of those market signalling efforts that the government has been launching around trying to persuade people to, you know, not take up what they would view as, uh, you know, careers that don't pay the right you know, amounts clearly aren't working if we've got, you know, an over 10% increase in students applying to, you know, do creative arts. Well, I can't really talk about the Chris Whitty effect, but what I, I was really interested in was actually seeing... Paul Johnson from the IFS, he tweeted something um, this week about uh, uh, about unemployment figures and, he, and he, sh- he exposed a big increase in unemployment amongst those who are lowest educated, but not really any increase in unemployment for graduates. And so I think this is obviously connected to this dis- um, discussion about UCAS numbers because it, whilst in times when the economy is weak, you know, graduate economic returns might not be as strong as we like. I think it's clear in general um, a, do- a degree offers you know much longer term resilience and protection in the employment market. And why I find it frustrating around the debate around um, access to higher education, around choice, is because it's around the issue of uncertainty. Mm. And I think as an individual, um, you're uncertain about what you want to do in future. You're uncertain about what the nature of the economy is going to be in 20, 30 years' time. You're going to be uncertain about your own personal uh, life when you're an 18, 19, 20-year-old or, or even a, as a mere mature student but that degree within that fog of uncertainty gives you the probably is, is a rational decision because it gives you that better longer term resilience and protection um, and skills to thrive in whatever the economy is in the future and so those people those those skeptics 
parts in the government, outside of the government that, that want to restrict access or restrict access by both what, what you've achieved before or through, um, through the disciplines, uh, you know, skepticism of, of, of certain subject choices and so on, I think are, are wrong because ultimately, how can they know what's in the best interest of an individual in that fog of uncertainty in comparison to an individual? And I think that, you know, this is, uh, this is understood by students and their parents and others. And this is shown in the, those UCAS figures that are continue to be strong. And we've seen, and Hillary, you know, can talk about this much better than me, but in terms of the student experience over the last year, it's clearly been massively impacted and, and, and not what we'd like it to be. And yet, despite all of that, numbers continue to rise and, and, and the demand for higher education continues to grow. I, I guess I guess what I would say is that I think it's really encouraging to see that students are still wanting to pursue higher education. And um, after what has been a really, really rocky year where um, they haven't felt encouraged um, or or like they've had much basis for having faith that they would be supported through that what I think this is a really really good indication of is that students still do want to go into higher education and are still really keen to, to go their full way throughout um, their educational experience but I think that comes with a set of expectations that now need to be met um, by government and by universities I think students want to see a, a, a real effort going towards making sure that they can have some sort of student experience albeit different um, in whatever university is going to look like um, in the next in the next year or so um let alone post pandemic but i think what's going to be specifically important when i think about the nursing student is that the the thing we've heard time and time again from students um that are studying nursing or even just doing allied to medicine courses is that they need support and and so those cases um for maintenance grants for the abolition of tuition fees for them for just greater support um in that process is going to be even more compelling seeing that those applications are going up and students want to do those subjects but need the supports to do those um to do those subjects well um and and feel supported in in getting through that to join um the nhs which has been the hero um definitely of this year and 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 we're seeing that going forward now every week on the show we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be with mike ratcliffe here's a hidden history of higher education one of the interesting things, if you think about um, the development of the English higher education sector, is how come the Scots, by the end of the 16th century, have uh, five universities and the English only have two. Aberdeen has as many universities as England has. So why does this, we end up in this very strange situation? Well, one of those key reasons is that Oxford and Cambridge get quite comfortable being universities, and they are very good at patronising the king and getting the king to stop other universities. So there are two key examples where um, the established universities kill off the opposition that they have. So the first of these is the University of Northampton. So Northampton, which now has a perfectly nice university, uh, doesn't have any lecture theatres, but it has a perfectly nice university, um, and its um, original university in the city uh, was founded way back at uh, the time of Henry III, um, and it's another offshoot. So um, problems at Oxford, some of the students get up and go, they coalesce in Northampton. But the problem is that it, this is a, a time of civil war, uh, and so the students there, although the university gets going, uh, they pick the wrong side. So they pick Simon de Montfort's um, rebels. And so when the King's army comes near Northampton, uh, they use their arrows uh, and, and bows, uh, or their bows and arrows even, uh, to fire on the King's troops. So this doesn't endear the King to the students of Northampton, because they're clearly rebellious and they don't like them. Uh, but meanwhile, the University of Oxford has decided, well, it's not very keen on Northampton. It's a bit close in terms of its monopoly. And it petitions the king to say, can we have this place uh, stopped? 
stopped because it, it will harm uh, our city of Oxford. And he gets the bishops on his side, uh, and therefore the king has a writ, uh, and the University of Northampton is dissolved and got rid of. Um, and the other the other attempt comes in Stamford in Lincolnshire, which sadly doesn't have a university to this day, a fine FE college, but no university. Um, and it gets another offshoot university. Uh, a group of rebellious scholars uh, get up and go. Um, migration is a technique used all over Europe to found new universities. So they migrate and off they go. Uh, but again, there's a petition from the two existing universities to have it stopped. Uh, and so they um, uh, get the king to issue another writ. Uh, and what's fun in its kind of scheme of things, is that Oxford inserts a clause into the oath that you swear to become a master. When you take your master of arts degree, you swear an oath. You uphold the statutes of the university, but you also uphold an oath never to teach at Stamford. So in the oath that they then continue to swear for the next 500 years, everyone is absolutely saying that you'll only teach at Oxford and Cambridge and never at Stamford. So they have to get rid of this clause in the beginning of the 19th century because actually some people say, well, I can't teach at UCL. What becomes UCL? Because I swear on this oath that I can't possibly do this anymore. Oh, this wildly out of date. So Oxford and Cambridge do their best to get rid of uh, other universities. The Scots uh, have a much more sensible system because I think there's a whole range of different factors but travel is is more complex but they also see the value of having universities in different places so different kings found I mean effectively tiny tiny universities um, but they have much more of a local feel uh, so students from the locale go to that university uh, they don't build halls of residence people stay much more locally linked and so by the time they get to the University of Edinburgh uh, being founded it's a town university it's a sense that the town wants to have a university uh, and it gets a royal charter to do so but it's it's about creating them so because Aberdeen ends up being reformed by them setting up a different college so there's King's College and there's Marshall College uh, they set up a different college in the same city um and so Aberdeen officially has two universities until they're united in the 19th century. Hence, the Aberdeen has as many universities as England has um, uh, anomaly. So we get into a, kind of a weird situation in terms of suppressing competition. Right, Heppy is back this week with a new report from uh, former Times Education Editor Rosemary Bennett on universities and the media. Richard, what jumped out at you from this? Uh, yeah, so this is uh, Rosie Bennett's happy report on the relationship between universities and the media and how universities can get a better press. And the report delves into why universities have faced greater scrutiny in recent years. And her argument, which is, I, I think is a pretty convincing one to me, is that universities, as, as they've expanded, impacted more lives, fees have increased, um, have really become a consumer story. Um, and one where the media tends to take the side of the underdog student, the consumer, rather than the institution. And what I also find really interesting in this report is the pressure on the journalist, the pressure on Rosie and her colleagues to get their articles in the newspapers every single day, convincing the news desk that their story should be more prominent or, or, or put in in those top few pages. And um, what what she said here was what was really important for her is is being able to provide her news desk with a, a simple narrative. And I suppose that combination of a simple narrative uh, for, uh, uh, aligned with uh, the consumer focus uh, over recent years is why issues around value for money, senior management pay and grade inflation and so on have been so prevalent and, and she comes up with some interesting perspectives on what universities should do to improve the relationship with the media, uh, use VCs more as, as public figures, offer more insight in terms of educational stories and, and, and say more about the wider 
educational um, uh, uh, landscape. And I think for uh, I think it exposes two really big things, which I, I think are probably well known, but 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 this really highlights is a universities need a really good top jaw press off press office, and they're going to have to put significant resources in that, particularly as this is not going away. And secondly, the critical importance of leadership and ensuring that vice chancellors are sort of um, and their team uh, really get to grips with the media and know how to handle it this point about um, higher education is now a consumer story not about kind of research or education um, was also the big takeaway for me I I wonder Hillary kind of what what you know where can student unions kind of ally with universities on on this point because I think it seems to me that you know a lot of the kind of old-fashioned way of thinking about universities and the press has been about as i say placing stories about you know innovation and research breakthroughs and the kind of great great kind of stuff that goes on on campus but actually there is the the media interest is about um students and um and from a kind of consumer point of view particularly the times you know rosemary's former paper which wants to sell newspapers to essentially parents of students and parents of prospective students um to help and kind of inform their view yeah, I think traditionally um, we've seen that universities normally like to use media when they want to celebrate an achievement or or call themselves set to leading in something or the other. And I think as good as that is, I think where student unions have been particularly effective in sort of um, in sort of tempering what can sometimes seem robotic and and not necessarily um, not necessarily personal is that student unions have just been brilliant. And I did um, quite a bit of work with our media team when I was back at Bristol, um, just bringing th- that human aspect to what universities do and what they are and I think what's particularly important is that I I think what I find is that the stories of real students on the ground and their real experiences of university is what people want to know about and what people want to hear and I I think the more that universities look to humanize themselves um, instead of being these big sort of institutions that put out really formal statements rather than sort of these these institutions made up of human beings with stories to tell and and experiences to share then they're never going to shake off that that sort of bad relationship that they have um with media in terms of how the marketization of higher education has framed them um as as sort of businesses um that that you know that hurt consumers um who students are framed as and I, I think this is a real indication that right now the consumer the consumer business marketized model whatever you want to call it um that that has been adopted by this government and 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 run through to universities um it just doesn't work in in really serving um the purpose of of how much universities are impactful for students and how much they are made up of students that have stories to tell and and things to share um constantly and I think that's really really important when we think about that ongoing relationship with the media in universities i mean jim you you probably follow the or track the kind of media's coverage of universities more than in this country more than anyone i would probably i think it's fair to say um because your, your twitter feed automates literally every single story that comes out um what do you recognize here at, from rosemary's analysis and and kind of what um you know you've been you've been tracking this for you know 10 years now or more yeah yeah a long time I mean, look, the paper is terrific, a real classic in its genre, I think, in terms of kind of scooping up lots of things that have been going on and and, and making you think. The thing I'd say that uh, is undercooked in the paper is that to some extent the media kind of likes to have its cake and eat it on this one. So, you know, there are as many consumer underdog, people have paid fees, what are rip-off stories, as there are, 
you know, Harry Potter H.E., you know, big school, big boarding school at that stories. And and it seems to me that if you were to, you know, find the vanishing point of those, they're not necessarily compatible. Either students are empowered consumers buying a sophisticated service provision product or they are to be treated like kids at big school <laughs> or, at least, you know, kids at boarding school and so on. And the media, of course, draws on for different parts of its audiences, different tropes there in order to place different types of stories at a given point. And sometimes even both of those tropes, you know, it coexist in the in the same story. You know, one minute the press wants to know when students are going to get a refund. The following minute, the press wants to know when students are going to be fined and thrown out of their student accommodation for, you know, socialising during a pandemic. I do think there's something very interesting about the way this year has played out and the position that universities have found themselves in, which for fairly obvious reasons has had to dial down the empowered consumer having an amazing great value experience and dial up the kids at big school are going to have to poke up with it because we're in the middle of a pandemic. You know, I kind of understand that universities have had to do that, but that does mean they've been in for an extraordinarily difficult ride. And and, and the, it's the bit about parents that I think that Rosemary really brings to life. You know, one of the things that strikes me in the thing I read yesterday, you know, that thing that's been round about a, a billion pound in wasted rent, right? That's been a really big story that Save the Student calculated and put out. One of the things in Save the Student's uh, accommodation uh, survey is that parents are shelling out £3,000 a year contributions to their students, to their kids' rent, and that's without all the other costs. £3,000 a year in hidden parental contribution to rent. And, you know, those are the circumstances under which a sector that stresses the, well, you know, it's very difficult, but we're doing our best, and, and, you know, look at all the money we've put into covid secure preparations the sector's going to find that really really difficult when it on one level or another has been a participant in and has caused you know hell of a lot of people to shell out for rent they didn't need to shell out for so look i I think some of the conclusion off of rosemary's report is about how the sector talks to the press and the stories it seeks to place but actually it's also sometimes about the decisions the sector makes uh, why it makes them and 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 its behaviour in public, whether it's seen to be arguing for and fighting for the interests of students and parents in public, or just doing it in private and often losing. And and if I may add, I think that's really really interesting, reflecting on how that's played out through the pandemic, especially because I think what has been really really interesting is that the personal and the professional has really really overlapped in a way that can't be separated anymore. And I think university's sort of common practice of of waiting to do things behind the scenes and then putting out public statements in really formal ways has just not worked when for for example parents who a lot of these things are targeted at want to hear a very human story of for example a vice chancellor that also has a a, a child at university or or a young adult at or or mature student um, at university um, who who recognizes that they have a personal investment in making sure that that their own um their own children get justice and that is something that translates to the to the rest of the student body um in 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 an equitable way and i think um sort of this age of putting out press statements and making sure that you know whatever universities put out are reputationally secure just doesn't work to really um speak in a in a very realistic and thoughtful way to the issues that you know universities have been complicit in and also have have um, been impacted by in terms of how students are being impacted by this 
system um, that they are that they are trying to to work through. Richard, just before we wrap up, I mean, reading this report, what would you think should be the kind of the main takeaways? So, for for a comms team in university, assuming that they're not going to be able to justify having a massive ramp up of resource um, anytime soon, what do you think uh, kind of professional comms outfits could be doing right now? So I, I think that this will be, I think comms outfits will, will enjoy this a lot. Um, I think my main takeaway from this is actually it needs to be read by others outside of the comms outfits from universities. It needs to be read obviously by vice chancellors, office governors, but also by academic colleagues, particularly those that have been criticising the sort of increase in the number of administrative staff within universities and, and expose really what the pressures universities under and, and why there needs to be a ramping up and uh, additional resource for comms teams within universities. Can I just take a couple of other things? We talk, talked about the st- at the top of the show around uh, free speech. And to some extent, this sort of it's got me thinking about how free speech, from in one perspective, is a consumer issues story. Um, uh, the fact about their rights to have free, free speech as a student, or, or so on. And I think that you will see that, that that element of consumerism is in a variety of stories that we'll see across the sector, and it's something to, to, to be aware of. Secondly, where I, I thought this was terrific, like like Jim and, and others have said around the paper, really enjoyed it, and, and, and a fantastic read. Um, where I think that um, I would have liked to. Have, uh, had more from Rosie on is around the conflict of collective action problems around exposing your institution or your vice chancellor to debate when it might be in the interest of that individual or that institution not to be out front and talk about those issues but for the sector as a whole um, it, it's problematic if people don't then engage in these discussions you know there's a classic example that she talked about She's quite supportive of Louise Richardson talking about VC pay and saying that she was the only VC that was actually willing to talk about that issue at the time. But of course, it probably, let's be honest, would have been better for Louise Richardson and for Oxford if she hadn't have done that because she compared her salary to, to bankers and, and, and footballers, which was probably not the right thing to do. So there is this conflict between actually needing to defend your position um, to support the wider sector, but how it can expose you as an individual or your institution. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Apple Podcasts or your favorite Android podcast directory or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast. So thanks to Hilary, Richard, Jim and everyone else at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. Until next week, stay safe, stay wonky. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.